It's car con carne. Let's eat in the car. It's car con carne. And now here's the star of our show, James Van And welcome to Car con Carne. We are live on a Friday night as we're recording this. I'm James Van Ossel, and a couple quick notes before I start tonight. As I'm recording this on Friday, November 5th, first of all, Monday will bring on the return to recording in the car. Hush Drops, the long-running, the much-beloved Chicago band Hush Drops. They've got a new album on the way on Pravda Records. They'll be joining me to usher in the return to recording in the car on Monday. Also, as I speak, Dan Vapid and the Cheats just put out their new album today. Dan Vapid and the Cheats were on the show earlier this week it is a high watermark for dan vapid and that is saying something here's a guy who was in screeching Re- screeching weasel the riverdales the methadones the new album is fantastic uh, you can listen back to the interview you can watch the interview uh, but definitely check out the music stream it buy it celebrate it also as i'm on the topic of music today is Bandcamp day i have so many musical guests on this show and have throughout the years this is a great day to support independent music. Bandcamp normally takes a, takes a fee of every purchase made through Bandcamp on stream on streaming music, CDs, merch, t-shirts, hoodies, records. Today's the day, Bandcamp Day. It's their monthly thing where if you buy something from an artist on Bandcamp, they don't take anything off the top. All the money goes directly to the artist. It's a great way to support artists that you're into and also you know, have something cool as a keepsake souvenir. So that's happening today. If you're so inclined, if you can uh, support, support some local bands, support some indie bands in and around everywhere. All right. That all out of the way. It's Friday night. And my guest tonight, he is an incredibly talented director and producer. He is Joe Bandelli. Good evening, Joe. Good evening. Thank you for saying those nice things about me. Before we talk about the new documentary, Paranormal Activity, Unknown Dimension, I want to say that you are partly responsible for the fact that I will not walk into an unfinished basement again as long as I live because of the Hell House movies. <laughs> Good old Hell House LLC. Yeah. You know, we uh, we actually, the, the writer-director, Stephen Cognetti, and I, we went back there um, to visit this past Halloween. and uh, To the like Abaddon? Yeah, we went to the Abaddon Hotel, uh, which is actually the Waldorf uh, Estate of Fear in uh, Lehigh, Pennsylvania. And we went there and the owner, Angie Moyer, she always tells us that that's the number one request. Anytime people show up, they're like, can we see the basement? Can we see the basement? And we're like, oh, that was the worst place to film. It was like a four foot ceiling. Like it was just terrible to be in. But yes, we're, we're as long as you're getting terrified, I think we're doing our jobs, right? I, I, I those movies have some indelible moments and they mostly revolve around clown mannequins. Um, just really well done stuff. Just thank you. Thank you. And I bring up the hell house movies. Well, for a lot of reasons, one, I mean, they're found footage movies. And when we talk about found footage movies, inevitably the discussion leads us to paranormal activity, which I, I watched this documentary. It's on Paramount plus right now. First of all, one of my big takeaways, probably not something you'd expect. Everyone you talk to seemed very nice and decent. <laughs> That's how we, we let them be portrayed. No, I'm just kidding. Everyone was great. Everyone was so, so awesome. It was, it was kind of a trickle down effect. Like when we first started the, the process, um, there, we had a small team of four of us. And when we started the process, Oren, Katie and Mika were the first three people that we were like, we have to get them. 
And they were super generous with their time. Oren sat down with me for about four and a half hours. Katie and Mika sat down with me for like two and a half hours each. And I just, it was kind of like, go to town, ask any question you want. And I think the reason why we did something like this is because in all the years, like when you even look at films like Blair Witch, Blair Witch had this whole thing going where they were trying to make it look like it was real. They hid the actors, they had the web page up, they made it look like it was real. Paranormal brilliant, activity, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Very, very brilliant. And they they did it around the time that like the internet started booming. So, right. um, but with Paranormal Activity, they never really hid that. You knew that it was a movie, but they never gave you a peek behind the curtain. They never had bonus features on any of their Blu-rays. They never, they only had like alternate endings or like deleted scenes, but they never showed you how these things were made where the people are now, what they're doing. So we were like, Hey, this is an opportunity to like dive into what I consider as the best found footage film of all time. Um, and really kind of see what happened and what went, what went on. It's an amazing story hearing Orange like rags to riches story. It's, it's so incredible. Truly. So you cover everything, the, the birth of paranormal activity through, uh, through the end. I mean, basically the documentary sets up the new movie that just came out at the same time Correct. as the documentary. Oren Pell, fascinating guy, influenced by Blair Witch. Talking to Mika and Katie, basically they said there there was no real script. They didn't know what the story was. They were completely in the dark. It, it definitely takes a special kind of actor to slide into a, a film like this. A hundred percent. And I think, you know, even going back to the Hell House um, movies, that's the same process that Steve and I and a couple other people we did when we were going through casting is, you need these people to kind of be able to spring into action at any given moment. And I think that's what, that's what Oren saw with Katie and Mika was he didn't even ask them like, how are you? What's going on? Like he didn't even do like an intro. He just asked them what was going on in their house and why do they think it's haunted? And they just went right into character. And I think if you see that someone could do that and someone could spring into it, you know, without any notice, like that's usually someone who has an ability to be able to improv. And here's some perspective. This blew my mind as I was watching the documentary. The movie debuts. First of all, it was roundly rejected first time around. Yep. Like No one wanted to do anything with paranormal activity. And then things happened. Um, there was a test screening story. I love this story. It, it, the, the test screening seemed to confirm one of the uh, film executives beliefs that it was a stiff or it was a failure because everyone left for the exits. Yep. And as it turned out, they interviewed the people leaving for the exits. They said, it's too scary. That's why we're leaving. Yeah. And I, I remember, I, I don't know if you remember, but I remember when that movie came out, I was in college when it came out or no, I wasn't, I was definitely not in college. I'm much older than that. But when it came out, I remember I was, I lived near a co college campus and that was the only place that you could see it because people were demanding it yeah. to get it in college campuses and in like smaller theaters. Um, and I remember just seeing like previews and seeing the trailers and the trailers were half on the people and half showing the footage. So yes. it was just showing the people being terrified. And that was the first time I'd ever seen anything like that. And, and bringing up that campaign, I thought that was genius. And you cover this in the documentary. It's like a, I'm perhaps a, a few years older than you. I remember the I want my MTV campaign in the 1980s where it, it's genius marketing. MTV was catching fire. There was so much buzz and, and grassroots stuff around it. And the campaign was demand your cable operator carry MTV. Yeah. Same thing with paranormal activity. Yeah. And the funny thing about it is when I went into these interviews, like I, I like I said, before before I got involved in the Hell House films, I never really loved found footage. I saw Blair Witch. I liked the concept. It was creative. It was it was unique, but it kind of made me sick. Like the shaky camera in a large theater kind of didn't yeah. I didn't love it. 
Um, and then when I saw Paranormal Activity, I was like, this is amazing. Like, this is such an incredible, like, use of found footage. But I, it wasn't like my passion. And then when Stephen Cognetti brought me on to work on the Hell House films, I started getting more deeper into found footage, what we were doing. I was, you know, I was the, um, I forgot what he calls, not the fashion police, but he called me sort of the, uh, I was his fact checker on anything that like wouldn't make sense why someone would use a camera. And I started like diving into the history of found footage and, and all these other things. And that's sort of like kind of what came about. So when, when we were doing the uh, Unknown Dimension, my goal was not to ask questions that would just sort of be a puff piece. It was to ask the real questions that I think fans want to know, like, A, how did you do these things? Why did you do this? And, you know, anything that came out of that documentary was really more out of like genuine curiosity. And I think we got so many, so many amazing answers. And to your point on the marketing thing, I went into these things assuming everyone would be like, oh my God, the marketing team was genius. The marketing team did this, but most of them were like, no, 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 no. It was actually really smart that we did this campaign, but it came out of necessity because we didn't have any money to put behind it. Like a lot of people were like, this kind of wasn't a whole marketing scheme that came up. It was like one or two people that were like, hey, we don't have money. Let's do this demanded campaign and let's see if that does anything. And it was kind of one of those things where anytime they put a movie up in a theater, if it didn't sell out, they were pretty much the movie was over. wasn't going to get bought. Nothing was going to happen. And it just kept selling out and selling out and selling out, which is, that's mind boggling, like, which I think is what Oren says in the documentary. So fast forwarding, that first one made $193.4 million on a $15,000 budget. Yep. It, it debuts. Was Katie working across the street at a Buca de Beppo? Like, she was talk talk about perspective. Yeah, she was working at a Buca de Beppo. And I think she what she said to me was, and you know, like another great thing that's great about this is I just told you I spent like nine hours with the three of them. I cannot tell you how much stuff we couldn't put in this film, but there's so many stories and so many awesome things. But with Katie specifically, you know, like most actors, especially actors in found footage, no one thinks it's going to become a billion dollar franchise. No one expects it to do what it did. So she went back to, you know, auditioning, uh, working at Buca de Beppo. And I think she started seeing the momentum. And the day that she realized like, Hey, I I shouldn't be working here was when the people were walking across the street and being like, wait a second, are you that person? And so that, that was really funny. And I thought that there's so many more stories like that with a lot of the cast that we just couldn't put into the film because we needed to make it, you know, 95 minutes ish. For sure. But that, that moment of realization where, Oh, I can quit my day job. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Isn't that something we all pine for? Isn't that the American dream? I mean, that's exactly why Warren made this movie because he did not. I can't tell you. He told me at least a dozen times in my interview with him that the whole reason why he did this was because he just didn't want to work at his job. His job sucked and he never wanted to work at that job again. And the setup of filming that first movie in his house, again, focusing on Mika and Katie, what a leap of faith. I mean, it, it could have yeah. probably seemed a little creepy. Yeah. And, you know, this is the thing that, that blows my mind about this is I've worked in found footage. I've worked on three films. Other people, especially filmmakers who are just getting started, a lot of people have worked on found footage movies. Usually they're like seven to 10 day shoots. You might have some reshoots and everything. That's what the first movie did. That's what Oren, Katie and Mika did. But when you look at the process of how they kind of reverse engineered making the movies with a studio in two through six, 
the filming time on those movies were like six months. Like that's the amount of time it took to make Lord of the Rings. You know what I mean? Like, like you would think it would be easier and it'd be like, Hey, let's get our ducks in a row. Let's figure this out. But there was something about trying to make it sort of like a student film quality that just baffled everyone. And obviously they did a good job and they brought in the right filmmakers and had the right team to do it because it was successful for such a long period of time. But that, that was another fact that just blew my mind. It was like, they could have made 12 Hobbit movies uh, with the time that they were shooting these paranormal activity movies. Well, it's interesting. And you can clarify uh, my memory here, but watching your movie, basically the movie was done, but the studio had the inclination to completely redo it from the ground up. Like, sure. yeah, that that's cute. That's quaint, but they, they wanted to, to gloss it up. They wanted to, sure. yeah. they wanted to Hollywood it. They, they wanted to bring in, you know, Brad Pitt and Jennifer Lopez. They wanted to make it big actors. And I think Mika says it in the documentary, but the reason why the film works is because Katie and Mika weren't known actors and they were very unknown. And you're watching these people and you can relate to them more than you can if you see George Clooney on the screen. Exactly. And they're very believable as a couple. Yep. Which, I mean, the screen tests were right on. I mean, I, I bought into them. Yeah. And they're still great friends to today. And, and they they have a great chemistry with one another. I'd love to see them in another project together at some point. So jumping ahead through the movies and you, you literally do talk to everyone. You talk to Jason Blum. I mean, you talk to the uh, the executives. Uh, Blum said that the fourth and sixth are the worst of the franchise. Is that fair? That is very fair. <laughs> that, that is the I would say from a fan's perspective, those two would probably be the not so liked ones in the in the franchise. Uh, marked ones. So this is the th- funny thing. I've always thought marked ones was kind of one of those films that it didn't get the credit it deserves. It was Christopher Landon's second feature film uh, that he directed. He's such a brilliant filmmaker and he's really smart. And I think the problem they, t- they told us a bunch of the things that some of them are in the documentary, some of them aren't, but there were a lot of things that went wrong with that. Like for starters, it was marketed as a spinoff. It was marketed as a completely different movie. And then when they were shooting it and they realized the ending didn't work, they tied it in directly to the first film, but they still marketed it as a spinoff. So you lost an audience of people who were like, oh, this isn't that that paranormal activity. Then the second thing is it was the first movie that they did in January. They released it in January, whereas one, two, and three were released around Halloween time and Halloween was sort of their market. Mm -hmm. So I believe the studio had uh, the devil inside or something came out the previous year in January and they had success with it. So they did that. And then the third thing that Chris told me was the weekend that they released it in January, there was a giant blizzard that hit the East coast. So they had like so many different things working against them. So it it was weird because the film is actually um, upon going back and looking at it. I would say the first one obviously is always, you know, that's the, the Mecca that everyone tries to live up to. The third one I think is a big one that people think is the best. And then I think the fifth, the marked ones is like right underneath the third one. Talk a little bit about found footage just as a genre, because there there's that storytelling technique where as a viewer, we're we're limited by what the camera is showing us. And we know that there's shit going on all around it. And that that is nerve wracking. It's it's stressful because your brain starts to try and fill in what you, what's on the fringes. I love yeah. it. But it, tell me what it what appeals to you about it. I think with found footage, there's a couple things. One, found footage is very forgiving. Like you could have mistakes, you could have lighting issues, you could have certain problems. Found footage will kind of cover up and disguise all of those things. So if you're a young filmmaker and you're trying to make a film, found footage usually is a good kind of segue to get into something because, you know, what you can shoot, if you're shooting on a normal set 
on a narrative feature, if you're shooting three to five pages of your script a day, which is usually around the average, you could probably do somewhere in the vein of like 10 to 15 pages on a found footage film, which is why they're so much shorter. The second thing is the actors, like the actors sell it. Like you have to have the right chemistry. You have to have the right people. This is why I always tell people like Hell House worked. Like we had the cast that got along with one another. And when we said cut, those actors were hanging out with one another. They were drinking with one another. They were bonding. And it felt like they'd been friends for 20 or 30 years. And I think that's the same thing in Blair Witch. It's the same thing Mm -hmm. in Paranormal Activity. Same thing in VHS. Same thing in Grave Encounters. Like it's all these movies where these characters are very, very believable. But it's, I think the easy side of it as a filmmaker is get people that are believable, let them improv and let them work off of the bones of your script. The hard part about it is, is you constantly, and I think Jason Blum even says this in the documentary, I think we left this in, you constantly have to justify where the camera is. In a narrative film, you can choose the direction you want to shoot. You can shoot the POV of whoever the character is. You can be objective. You can be subjective. You can play around with that based on whatever your creative vision is. In found footage, you don't have that luxury. You always have to tell the audience that there's a reason why we're using this camera. And some movies do it really well. And some movies don't do it really well. I even think in the Hell House franchise, there are times that we don't do it very well. But you always have to justify that. And that is, as a filmmaker, the hardest thing to do. And I think, again, because it's cheap, because you don't need, because you need more unrecognizable people than recognizable people, and because it covers some mistakes, it's an easy filmmaking tactic to get into it. But once you actually are doing it and you have, you know, the good actors and everything, you still need to be really creative with how you're going to reveal your scares, how you're going to go through these sequences, because um, it's challenging. It's in the documentary, you gave a mind boggling statistic as horror franchises go, Paranormal Activity is fourth of all yeah, time. So, so they, they're behind Saw, Jaws, and Alien. But the other fact, so the producers, Anthony Massey, and uh, our producers are Anthony Massey of Massey Media, Rachel Belofsky, who uh, is the founder of the Screen Fest um, Film Festival, mm-hmm. and then Nate Reagan. So the four of us, when we were talking about all this stuff, one of the statistics that I brought to them, and I was like, I'm like 99.9% positive. This is accurate. And I wanted to put it in there and they were like, we don't, we can't really fact check this. So let's not put it in the documentary. And then after it came out or after we like submitted it and got it all to Paramount and we were done, I started seeing things that were people when they were talking about next of kin and all these other things, I started seeing things where people were saying it. I was like, God damn, it should have been in there, but it is the original paranormal activity is the most profitable film of all time. Like that solo film is the most profitable film of all time. Again, one hundred ninety-three point four million out of fifteen. Made, made for fifteen grand. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That's that. Uh, again, that's the American dream. That's yes, it. That, that's that it. is the definition of the American dream. <laughs> so, it, Oren is an interesting dude. Just from the interviews, what, what's he like? Is he he seems quirky, eccentric? Oren is the most practical and down-to-earth person. He. I mean, he showed up in a t-shirt, like this guy's worth $50 million and he's the same person he was beforehand. Like he's, he's very smart. He's very intelligent and he's very practical. He, the way, the way I got the impression from talking with everyone was he was sort of that 
anytime they would come up with ideas for the second, the third or the fourth, they'd be like, Oren, what do you think? And he'd be like, mm, not good. Like he was that person that was like, not good. Doesn't make sense. Like he was kind of like the, I don't know if Debbie Downer is the right word. Cause that's not what he is. It was more of a, he was the one keeping everyone in check saying that's not going to work. That's not going to make sense. This doesn't happen. Like it needs to be genuine. It needs to be real. And I mean, he was such an easy person to talk to. He was so generous with his time, with his information. We talked about so many things that we didn't put in the documentary that hopefully one day we could do like an eight hour director's cut. I don't know if anyone would watch that, but, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I love Oren. Like I, I, he was just such an incredible person to talk to and it couldn't have happened to a better guy. After putting all this together and talking to everyone who, who is responsible for the, for this franchise, did you as a producer, did you as someone deeply involved with the hell house franchise, did you take stuff away for your own yeah, selfish I mean, needs? I mean, of course, I think every time you, uh, you do something, you're always trying to learn and get a little bit better for what you can do. Um, it, I mean, for starters, not only with my producers and my editor who were like, it was five of us who were the core team, not only with that team, which was such an incredible team to work on this, but it opened up doors and relationships with me and some of the people that I interviewed. And, you know, it's just, I find it kind of funny that, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, whenever uh, paranormal activity came out, I was a fan. And now for some reason, I'm somewhat linked to it because i did a documentary about it and everyone was forthcoming. So that that's kind of like mind blowing and fun, but yeah, I mean, I I've created some great friendships out of this and then, yeah, you're right. Selfishly, you always say, well, if they did this and they're doing this, I can try to utilize this and, and bring it back to what I'm doing as I'm making movies and as I'm writing and trying to get things out there. So yeah, there's always a little bit of that. So I mentioned at the end of the documentary, which again is on Paramount plus right now it's paranormal activity, unknown dimension. There's teasing of this movie, which you referenced, Paranormal Activity, Next of Kin. That just came out also on Paramount+. Plus. What are your thoughts on that? Because it's, it's it is a left turn from anything yeah. you'd expect. So the hard thing about the hardest thing about this was when we originally started making Unknown Dimension, they hadn't announced Next of Kin. They hadn't announced that they were making the film. While we were doing the interviews, we started getting like the impression from them, like, hey, something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. It might happen. And when, you know, we did most of our interviews, I think Catherine Newton is the only person we interviewed during the pandemic. Most of the interviews took place in 2019. So mm -hmm. we had most of the stuff done. We had the way I had conceived an ending that kind of left it open-ended to what's going to be the next thing. And then they announced the movie. And then it was sort of one of these things like, were, you know, we weren't even involved with Paramount from the beginning of it. We were just doing it independently on our own, but we just got one person after the next, after the next. And then we went back to Paramount because we thought it'd be a really good marketing tool for them to promote. Absolutely. Next. Yeah. Um, you know, some, one of the things that I think, you know, was, was a little odd for me was the fact that they both got released at the same time. Cause I think yeah. if, they, if they were separated a little bit, it would have been more eyes to push it, everyone to go see next of kin. Um, but I'm still happy with how everything came out. And I think I saw next of kin at the premiere. Um, I'll say this. It's a very, very scary movie. It's, I think it's very well done. I think Will Eubank did a fantastic job with it. The cast was phenomenal in it. Um, but I think 
part of me feels like you didn't necessarily need for it to be a paranormal activity movie because it really goes in a completely different direction. And there are talkings about them tying in what the direction is to the original canon, which I'm pretty sure they will do with an eighth or a ninth film. Um, but as a standalone film, you know, you tell people this is the seventh movie in, those, in the installment and they're like, oh, I got to go back and watch all six of them. And it's like, really, you don't like you could watch this movie on its yeah. own. And I think that's sort of what they were trying to do is to bring like a fresh audience into this. Well, as a horror fan, there are things I really like about Next of Kin, those themes of an outsider in a very isolated culture. I mean, we've seen it in Wicker Man Man and Midsummer. There's certain similarities. And I love that. I mean, because what a great setting, throwing someone in this alien culture that looks very normal. Yep. Yeah, and I, I thought that was very effective. And they did the thing that that everyone had said the entire time along is like, get out of the one house, like go to yeah. multiple locations, do a bunch of different things, do a different group of people, make it a little bit more diverse. So I think they accomplished that. And I think they did a really good job in that in that area. All right. Based on that, let's transition. Get out of the house. What do you do with Hell House next? <laughs> so Steve and I have, uh, we, we have developed, um, we have some scripts and we've developed uh, a prequel series. So that makes sense. it's called the Abaddon tapes, um, which they allude to at the, thir- at the end of the third film. And ideally we're, we're still in talks. There's nothing. I mean, there's been stuff on social media saying it's happening. It's not happening. It's not happening as of yet. It's something that Steve and I are still pitching and hoping to get made um hopefully sooner rather than later but we'll see what happens but the series would in essence be a narrative series that ties found footage into it so wouldn't be a completely found footage series and our goal is throughout the movies and i think this happens with every franchise throughout the movies there's little bits and pieces of things that like don't really get answered or don't really you know and you're never going to satisfy everyone and answer every single question but we really wanted to take the series back to the roots of andrew tully creating this cult and go back to the 80s when that happens. So ideally, every, it's a six episode series. Every episode touches on a different era and it starts all the way back in the 80s with Andrew Tully and it leads all the way up to present day, which is around post Hell House, Hell House 3. Brilliant. And there's something, there's something so simple and brilliant about that first one, just this concept of these haunted house creators in a haunted house. It's while like, who sh- watches the Watchmen? <laughs> while while we shot it in a haunted house attraction. <laughs> yes, absolutely yeah, brilliant. Yeah, there's a lot and, of meta going on there. A lot of meta, and I, I referenced the 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 clown mannequins. One of the legit hair all over, standing on end moments. One of the, one of the most chilling moments in cinema, I think, is in that first movie, and it's the uh, the near the stairwell scene. Um, on turns. Uh-huh. Where they go down the stairs and they turn back and the clown's staring at them. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like I, I'm kind of getting chills thinking about that. That is one of my favorite moments. Well, I will say this. Um, we, we had a lot of complications with that. I think originally, you know, Steve wrote a clown, a creepy clown, like, like a carnival clown. Like he wrote that character as a carnival clown. And, you know, we, we bought, we, we tried to make a clown mask. It didn't work out. We bought a different clown mask. We modified it. We did a bunch of different things. And then when we use it in the film, we use it a bunch of times. We also use it in scenes that weren't seen, like the scene upstairs with the girl when Paul peeks and the girl sitting in the corner of the room. We shot that with the girl. We That's also another great scene. Clown. That's another great one. 
Yeah, we just shot all this stuff, but a lot of times these things take on a life of them on their own. Like the clown was never meant to be the like one of the bigger characters, but it just took on a life of its own. And like by the second one, when Steve started writing, it's like, we got to put the clown in this. Like we got to keep putting the clown in this. And I will say this, my only tease for the Abaddon tapes is there is an episode directly about the clown and who is the clown. So hopefully we get to tell that story. Yes, please. And if you're having problems with masks, just start with a William Shatner mask. I mean, yeah, that's that's kind of that was our method. It was like get a regular clown mask and then make some changes to it and make some modifications. And that's exactly what we did. I love it. OK, so fingers crossed that we get to see that. That, that, would, that would make me that would make me very happy. In the <laughs> meantime, in the meantime, the, this celebration, this like deep dive into the paranormal activity franchise, it's paranormal activity, unknown dimension. Uh, Credit to you, and I, I think this this speaks volumes uh, of the documentary. I finished it and thought, well, shit, I want to binge the entire franchise now. Like it, it had been a while since I'd seen all the movies, but like after hearing all those stories, and again, the first thing I said, everyone is so likable. Yeah, I, I, like I, I wanted to kind of start start from scratch and start with the first one and wind my way through them all, the, even the yeah. ones that Jason Blum doesn't like. I mean, my my, my hopes were like at the very least. People who, I mean, paranormal activity fans are going to watch this movie. They're going to be like, something paranormal activity, I'll watch it. It's the same thing with any IP. You make a movie about Freddy Krueger, any Nightmare on Elm Street fan is going to go see it, no matter how good or bad it is. So we knew that paranormal activity fans are going to want to watch this. It was more about seeing what happens to people who don't watch the paranormal activity movies. And that was what we were hoping, is that people would be like, this is really interesting. Let me go back and watch the movies. That's the secret. That's the secret to telling stories on the Internet. Make it interesting for people who think they're not interested. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And you nailed it. I, I thought it was incredibly entertaining. It's on Paramount Plus right now. Unknown Dimension, the story of paranormal activity. And when you, viewer, listener, finish that, uh, dig into Hell House LLC. Uh, I'm telling you that that first one that just still gives me chills. But there are chilling moments throughout all three films. And uh I, I love it. And you learn a little bit about Faust along the way, too, as you watch. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, it's a Friday night. I'm going to let you let you do what you do on Friday nights. Uh, Joe Bandelli, thank you for doing this. Absolutely. Thank you for having me.